Well, if you would, um, my name's Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you would um, remain standing for the reading of our text today. Uh, today, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10 and verses 13 through 17. I'll be reading from the NLT. It says this, Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Somebody say saved. saved. Somebody say saved. saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. Beautiful feet. You know you got pretty feet today? Tell somebody they got pretty feet today. You tell them their feet are pretty. You got pretty feet today. So what the scripture says in the Pastor Ethan Standard Version, it says pretty feet right there. How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm grateful for some good news in my life. Verse 16 says, but not everyone welcomes the good news for Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. Here's my title for today, it's this, get on your feet. Somebody say, get on your feet. Get on your feet. It's time to get on your feet. With that being said, you can, you can have a seat. I've been figuring out how all week I'm going to make that transition from the sermon title to sitting down. But no, we're, hey, we're grateful that you're here today and um, we're grateful that you decided to, to worship uh, together. At, anybody excited to worship today, by the way? Anybody excited to be in, in the house today? Um, we, oh, hey. There we go. I'm excited to, to be with you. If you are online, I want you to know as well, we're grateful that you're worshiping with us um, online. However you can get to worship, you just got to get there. And so we are grateful that you are worshiping with um, us. Well, um, what I, um, let, me, let me do this before we dive in a little bit, uh, before you're too far. Let me, let me do this. Um, this season um, is my favorite season um, of the entire year uh, for our church. Um, me and my wife, we are huge Christmas fans. Uh, how many of you already have a Christmas tree up in your house? Anybody got a Christmas tree up? Some of you uh, go-getters. My wife, she would have put it up in February if I would have let her. Um, but we got our Christmas tree up. We put it up this past weekend, and it is smelling delightful in, in the Welch household. We have actually been using our natural wood-burning fireplace the past few days. It has been delightful in the Welch household. But I'm excited about this season. Um, I'm excited about this season of our church. This is my favorite time of the year for um, our church. And uh, the reason is, is because every November we take a few weeks and we park and we stop uh, all the things that we're doing and we, we focus in on the vision that we believe God has for our church. And um, we believe that uh, God gives vision. He stirs in me and our leadership gives fresh vision for uh, a new year and what God would want to do in our church. And we press into that and we focus on that for a few um, weeks. And so you could understand how the pastor of teaching and vision is exciting, excited about a season of vision. And so we do that. And the vision for this year is the word reach. Somebody say reach. reach. 
And the way that we culminate our vision and the way that we really manifest our vision is through something that we do called the Faith Initiative. And if you've been here for the past few weeks, you've been hearing us talk about that. If you're new to the bridge, which many of you are, our Faith Initiative is a one time a year. It's an annual offering. It's a time where we really don't just talk the talk, but we walk the walk. We put our our finances and we invest in uh, the kingdom of God, the the mission of God, specifically through the Bridge Church, um, to impact things like church planting, to impact things like local schools, to impact things like sending missionaries around the world, to impact things like future uh, facility for the Bridge Church and where God is having us go and what he has in store for us. And so that's what the Faith Initiative is, and we uh, ask everybody to uh, everybody that calls the Bridge Church home to make a one-time financial gift to this above and beyond what your regular giving is. And so my wife and I, we, we do this every year. My kids are at the age now where they're even in doing this of their own accord. And so we've been praying and talking. We still have not landed on our number yet, but we will this week. Uh, we're praying about what God would have us to give um, sacrificially and radically. Um, it's honestly, uh, we, we have never, I mean, it's what we, the way that we participate as a family in the faith initiative, it's, it's significant. We don't, we don't, I mean, it's the, it's the biggest thing that, that we give to um, in, in our entire lives. And so it's a grateful, um, it's, we're grateful for the opportunity to do that. And we invite you into that as well. And we know that many of you don't yet call the Bridge Church home and you don't have to give a dime. Uh, we're just grateful that you're here. If you uh, maybe haven't crossed the line of faith yet, not a Jesus follower, maybe you're not committed to the bridge or maybe you got some church hurt or de-churched or, or whatever. Um, there's no pr- pressure. There's no obligation. This is an invitation for those who want to participate and join in on what Jesus is doing here in our church and our city and um, around the world. And so uh, we invite you to, to give. Um, it's also, I just want to say a couple of things real quick because I'm so excited. Um, we are actually experiencing as a church uh, the most generosity that we've ever experienced in the history of our church, which is, which is awesome. We have more people, more people giving to the bridge uh, than ever before, which means more giving units or family units who are giving to the bridge. It's, it's more each month than, than ever before. And by dollars, uh, more people are giving uh, or the amount is greater than, than anything before. And so I just, I just say that because, um, man, it's just encouraging. It's exciting to be a part of something where people are invested and people are giving. And uh, we're seeing great, great movement and great traction in that area. We did an annual church survey just a few weeks ago. Um, we, we asked people if they regularly give. It's, it was anonymous, and we just asked if people regularly give. Um, 43.4% of people self-reported. They signified that they don't yet give to the bridge on a regular basis, and that's okay. Maybe you're new, or maybe you're not don't even sure if you believe in this thing or whatever. That's okay. But maybe this faith initiative for many of you could be an opportunity where you could begin to give something. And it's not about giving to the bridge. It's not about you know uh, you know I, I don't have a better lifestyle or anything because you give. This is about the kingdom. It's about investing in the kingdom. It's not about what we want from you. It's about what we want for you. And so we invite you to give and to to give significantly and to give uh, radically. And this is a giving season at the end of the year, but we say uh, give your first and your best to Jesus. Give, give him your best um, this year. And so here's what I'd like to do. Um, God has really just providentially, I think, organized all the elements of our day today and where we've been with the worship set and uh, where we're going with the sermon. And then um, as well, I think uh, this faith initiative and how it fits together. Um, one of the things that we get to do is participate in church planting, which is actually seeing new churches started. We do this every year and we have multiple partnerships that we are involved in every single year at the bridge. This is our newest one. It's a reality church with 
with Pastor Carlos in Miami, and we believe in, in the vision big time of what they're doing in Miami. I thought it'd be helpful um, for you to see what they're doing. So if you would, turn your attention to the screen. My name is Carlos Solet, and I wanna invite you to partner with me as we plant a gospel-centered church that shows and shares the love of Jesus in the heart of Miami. I came to know Jesus because two missionaries from the Midwest, Marjorie Johnson and Esther Carson, trusted that God had called them to the plains of Venezuela. And they moved there and they shared the gospel with my grandmother, who then shared it with my mom. And they both shared it with me until I came to know and love Jesus Christ. And in the same way, I want you to help me share that great gospel with the people of Miami. People like my own family who migrate to the United States to experience liberation, sometimes from oppression. And while they experience the blessings of this country, they can also be crushed by the broken promises of the American dream. People like my neighbor, an Eastern European artist with a wife and two children, who are trying to find their way in this global city of Miami. And here's what I want my neighbor to see. Here's the kind of church I want him to see. A gospel-centered church because the gospel is the best news for those not only who are far away from God, but also for his children who need Jesus' grace even on their best day. I wanted to see a church for all people where the gospel bridges racial, cultural, and economic divides. I wanted to see a church for Monday where he can see how the gospel isn't just for an hour on Sunday morning, but it actually affects the 168 hours of his week. I want him to see a dependent church that pursues intimacy with God in prayer and relies on the power of the Spirit, especially in the middle of a city that strives to find satisfaction in external things like money, sex, and power. I want him to see ascending church because we have a mission to make disciples and preach the gospel until the whole earth hears. At the end of the day, we just want the church to be the church. And what an opportunity to see it established in Miami, a strategic global city with millions of people who don't know Jesus. When we touch Miami with the gospel, we're not only touching Miami, but we get to touch the entire world. So I wanna invite you to join me in this mission by praying for us, by investing financially, and perhaps just like with Esther and Marjorie, by moving to Miami to serve together side by side in reaching people for Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? Um, so through this, through this faith initiative, uh, your gifts, your generosity, uh, we're going to support them financially. Um, do you know that uh, the kingdom takes finances, you know, by the way, by the way, um, there, there, I think sometimes we think there's, there's like a cash fairy somewhere that like gives cash, you know, to, to help. No, it actually takes our resources. Um, we, we say uh, God's resources for God's kingdom reside in God's people. So it's me and you. And so to the degree that we, we give, uh, we can actually impact the, the gospel going all around the world. So through the faith initiative, 
through your giving th this year, uh, we're going to send $10,000 to Pastor Carlos to help uh, start the new church um, because he, he's going to need it and it's going to take resources. And so, um, and, and, there, and there's a few dozen other things that we're going to do in, in addition to that. So, um, so we're, we're super excited. And next Sunday is our Faith Commitment Sunday. And so we would just encourage you to be in prayer over this week about what um, God would have you give and what, uh, how you could participate and join us in the Faith Initiative. Um, if you're with me, say, somebody say amen in the house. Now, here's what I want to do today. We're in this series uh, titled Reach, and our vision is to reach. And I, I, we're, we're talking about sending thousands of dollars to church plants and, and things around the world. Um, we obviously believe in what we're doing, um, but the, even the concept of reach it means the, is the idea that people need to be reached. Are you with me? Like, like the concept, we're talking about reaching, um, is the concept that, that people actually need something. They, they need something that they don't have, and it's kind of our responsibility to help them uh, find what they are looking for, maybe even what they are not looking for. Here's, here's what I want to do today. As, as we look at Romans chapter 10, um, I think this is going to be um, helpful and necessary as we even think about how we exist and why we even would want to reach a world um, at all. So Romans chapter 10, verse Verse 13, um, the text that we read earlier, I want to read this verse again, and then I want to kind of set the stage for um, why, how this impacts what we are doing. So here's what Romans 10 verse 13 says. It says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be saved. Now, we just need to go ahead and park and, and recognize that, that word right there at the end, saved, all right? Um, that sounds like an old, primitive, archaic wor word. Like in our day, um, how in the world could, could, could you think, you know, as a progressive-minded person, as an intellectual person, as an educated person, why would you even think, why would you even imagine that someone would need to be saved? That sounds so primic, that, uh, primitive. That sounds so um, archaic. And so let, let's, let's do this. What I would like to do is I want to park for a minute and actually talk about this concept of salvation. I'm going to spend a few minutes working through um, some content, and then I'm going to be um, back into the text for the final um, few application points of what we're going to do. I think it's important if we're going to really um, value and understand how good the good news is, you have to understand how bad the bad news is. If you really are going to appreciate how good the good news is, and we would say we have good news, you have to understand first how bad the bad news is. And as uh, your pastor and one of your pastors, uh, one of the things that the scripture says, it's my responsibility to shepherd your soul, which is like extremely daunting. That's extremely weighty. What that means is that I've got to have some conversations with you. I've got to lead you and I've got to have some instruction for you that maybe at times isn't the most comfortable for you, maybe isn't the most comfortable for me, but if we're talking about your soul and the gravity of your soul, you would agree that it's important at times for us to have some soul conversations, right? And so today what I would like to do is to have a little bit of a soul conversation and we're going to, um, in order to understand this concept of being saved or salvation, we've got to first understand the concept of divine judgment and hell. And you're like, well, Pastor Ethan, is that, is that what you were playing, waking up this morning, like excited to, I don't wake up in the morning like, I don't think I'll just talk about hell today. Um, but I think for us to understand of the weightiness of what it is that we're trying to do, we have to park and we have to stop and, and think about um, 
the concept of hell and even the concept of divine judgment. And here's, here's the reality. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're part of the church, if you believe in the scriptures, if you believe in the Bible and you would say you're a kind of person that wants to follow Jesus and to do what Jesus would command and what Jesus would teach, you, it is inescapable to wrestle with and to acknowledge the reality of divine judgment and hell. So for instance, um, Jesus doesn't only reference hell or the concept of hell, he actually describes it in great detail. So in Mark, or sorry, Luke 16, 23, Jesus describes hell as a place of eternal torment. In Mark 9, 43, Jesus refers to it as an unquenchable fire. In Mark 9, 48, he says this is a place where the worm does not die. He says as well in Matthew 13, 42, that this is a place where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. He says in Luke 16, that this is a place from which there is no return. In Matthew 25, 30, he calls this a place of outer darkness. In Matthew 10, 28, he compares it to Gehenna, which was a literal trash heap outside the city of Jerusalem where trash was burned unceasingly and where they actually threw dead bodies. And here's what you have to recognize is that Jesus talks about hell um, more than anyone else in the entire Bible. And Jesus addresses the reality of divine judgment um, more than um, anyone else in all of Scripture. Now, before you just completely write me off, okay, and I, I got you locked in for a little while, but um, before you completely um, lock me off, before you walk out the doors, um, I, I think it's important for us to, to actually think about the concept of hell and divine judgment because all of us um, have to get to a point where we make some kind of explanation for the afterlife. So it doesn't matter if you're a spiritual person, non-spiritual person, you're a religious person, you're an irreligious person, you're a church person, you're a non-church person, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. Every single one of us has to wrestle and grapple with the afterlife. Whether you're a progressive person, whether you're whatever person, all of us have to wrestle with what happens to us after we die. Like, what, what happens to our, our bodies? What happens to our soul? What, 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 what do we do with that? I was, I was reminded of this this, this past week. Um, I was on the campus of UNCW, and I was invited to participate in a panel discussion of, discussion of pastors uh, connected to a performance in the theater department that was titled The Christians. And I was like, this is going to be interesting. Um, so I got to be on campus this past week. I was a part of a panel discussion. It was super cool. Um, the, there was a play called The Christians. Our own college student, a senior, Davis Wood, played the main character in the play. He did an awesome job. He's an incredible um, actor. I'm gonna, curious where God's going to send him and what he's going to do with his life. Um, but, uh, and Davis is actually a pivotal that I was uh, connected to this and got to be a part of it. But, but here's, here's, here's the gist of the play without spoiling the whole thing for you. The, it's called The Christians, and it revolves around this central character, the pastor. And in the play, the pastor shows up one Sunday and he says, church, I've got an announcement for you. Um, as of today, we're no longer going to be a church that believes in hell, <laughs> which I would just say is like... Um, a bad way for trying to get things done at your church, okay? I mean, don't show up on Sunday and say, this is what we're gonna do. Um, but he, he, he announces this to the congregation and you can imagine what uh, ensues is just, just chaos on every different level. And I won't uh, explain everything to you, I won't spoil it all for you. But what's interesting and, and what the play actually does a brilliant job of doing is that whether or not you believe in hell 
What the play demonstrates is that none of us are absolved for having to wrestle with the afterlife. So if you're somebody that believes in hell, or you're somebody that said, no, nah, I could never believe in hell. Well, it actually, that doesn't absolve you of having to wrestle with um, the afterlife. And so whether you are you know, a progressive person or you're intellectual or academic or you're a hipster or you're into reggae, it, it doesn't matter who you are. All of us have to wrestle with this reality of the um, afterlife. And just for clarity, um, what the scriptures um, teach and what's extremely clear in the scriptures, and there's some debate on is this literal, is this metaphorical, so on and so forth. But what the scriptures teach is that there is um, divine judgment against those who are not followers of Christ, for those who do not trust God and believe in God, um, give their lives to Christ and repent and receive salvation, there is divine judgment for all who reject and resist the Holy Spirit and reject the message of uh, salvation. And that place is, as I have already described, in the words of Jesus and the way that Jesus has um, articulated it. Now, if you're like, gosh, a little too heavy for me, like, Wow, I, I just, I just, I just can't go there. Maybe, maybe you're a church person. You're like, nah, I'm not down with that. Maybe you're not a church person. Whatever. There's two common objections that um, I hear uh, often, where people um, object to this idea or this concept of hell or divine judgment. I want to walk through both of them for you, um, and then we'll we'll jump back into the text. Um, here's the first one. The first one is what I'll call moralism. Um, the first objection to hell or divine judgment is this uh, idea of, of what I'll call moralism. It, it kind of goes like this. Someone says, I can't believe in a God that would send good people to hell just because someone doesn't believe in Christ. That's very exclusive. What about people who believe in some other religion or perhaps they're a spiritual person? But it's not very loving of God to send people to hell just because they don't trust in Christ, especially people who are diligent in their beliefs and make a positive difference in the world. That doesn't sound like a very loving God to me. So that's the objection. Now, a couple problems with this line of thought, though immediately it actually might sound very appealing. Um, a, a couple problems with this line of thought. First, um, it's, it's actually still incredibly exclusive. You're basically saying only the good people make it in. So what, what about um, the people who've messed up? What about the people who have made mistakes in life? And, who, and, and, and then as well, who really defines what is good? I mean, is that, is that you? There's still a line that you have created of those who are in and those who are out. And we could argue pretty easily that your line is even more exclusive because now the standard is not trust in Christ, it's your own works and performance of being a good enough person. Now, here's the other problem with, with this objection uh, is that it actually doesn't demonstrate a loving God. So, for instance, if the good people make it in, then God's salvation isn't really necessary. And if people can save themselves by their own good works, then God doesn't have to be personal he doesn't have to intervene. He doesn't have to do anything, which then makes the cross unnecessary, which means God didn't actually demonstrate his love for you by sacrifice and suffering, which means God is actually very impersonal. And so it 
first glance, the objection sounds like very appealing, but actually when you dig down into it, it's, it's actually exclusive and actually creates a God that's less loving, not more loving. Now, here, here's the second objection that, um, it, it, that I hear often, and I'll, I'll call this one universalism. Universalism, and it goes something like this. Someone would say, well, I don't believe in hell or divine judgment at all. I don't believe in a God of wrath. I can't believe in a God that would even send someone to hell. I don't believe there are some people who make it in and some people who don't. I believe God loves all people. I, be I believe we are all God's children. And I believe God accepts everyone regardless of their beliefs. And I think we're all on different paths but headed to the same destination. Well, this one sounds nice uh, at first, but the problem with this is it doesn't do much for justice. So surely you don't genuinely think that everyone gets in and everyone is going to the same place. I mean, what about Hitler? What about Stalin? What about leaders in the sex trafficking industry? What about child molesters? You see, if God has no wrath towards sin and evil and injustice, then he really isn't loving after all. You see, the expression of love is often wrath towards that which harms the object that is love. So for instance, I've got three daughters, um, Nora, Harper, and Claire. Uh, they're 10, 8, and 6. Um, I love them. Um, all five of us, we make the we make the fabulous five. I love them. And I got the three girls. And let, let, let's say we're, we're, we're leaving worship today. We, come, we worship together with the church. It's amazing. And we're walking out the door in the parking lot. And just some random person out in the parking lot. I mean, they just reach back and they just slap one of my daughters like right across the face. I mean, just knock, knock her in the face. And then she falls down on the ground. Well, what, should, what should be my response? Well, According to this objection, I should just be a person of love. And I should just say, wow, I love you, you know, and, you know, that was, that was okay, you know. It's fine. You can do. No, no, no. If, if I'm a loving father, what do I do? I, I'm actually wrathful towards anything that's going to harm the, the, the that, that this, everybody would say that's normal. That's, so, as you see, you, you, you can't have, a, a, wrath isn't the opposite of love. Actually, um, wrath is actually an expression of love against something that, is, that you love that is, is harmed. And, and so um, you can't create a God of love and, and not also have a God of wrath. So then hell expresses to us the nature of God's justice, first, of all, first and foremost is justice, that he takes injustice seriously, that he takes evil seriously, which we are so grateful for, which is why Christians are the most hopeful people on the planet, because even when we don't get to experience justice in our current day, we know that God is handling justice. And it says, vengeance is the Lord, not, not mine. So that God is a God of justice, that, that he is intolerant of corruption and malevolence and wickedness and immorality. So, so divine judgment um, actually encourages us that, that God is, he actually cares about us and he, he cares about justice. In addition to God's justice, hell expresses to us the nature of God's love. And if hell is real, and if we deserve it because of our own inner depravity and corruption, then the gospel means that Christ took hell upon himself, that he substituted himself for us so that we could receive um, what we did not deserve and so that we could be uh, forgiven. 
And so at first, the concept of hell to a 21st century Western American sounds unbelievably appalling, but you actually have to get down to the core and recognize there are some things you actually don't want to throw out. Um, there's things about justice. There's things about that love that you actually have to hold on to. And, and, and maybe you're appalled by the, the, the thought of the concept of, of hell, but you're even more appalled by a God that wouldn't even be loving or a God that wouldn't even be just. I, I love the way that C.S. Lewis um, talks about this. He's the, he, he, was a, he was really a, a philosopher, a great thinker. He was a, an atheist who converted to Christianity later in life. And he, he, the way he talks about this is, is super helpful. But he says, um, if you could think about it this way, um, the doors of hell would be locked from the inside, would be if there are doors, to, to use that language. And so if hell is for those who refuse God's salvation, for people who resist God's salvation, then hell is ultimately their choice. It's their wish. It's not them banging on the doors trying to get out. It's their ultimate existence, not wanting to have anything to do with God. It's the actual what they wanted, which is I don't want God or need God or want to be with God. It's separation from God. And so I think it's important for us to maybe reframe the way that we think about hell. I don't think it's helpful to think um, of God as like he's just an angry God. He's just throwing people into hell as quick as he can. Or that they're just down in, in, in a pit and he's just, he's just keeping them down and he just, he, he just wants people to get to hell. And it's, it's like, you know, they're trying to, to, to climb out and, you know, and they're saying, please let me out. And, you know, God's up at the top saying, no, it's too late, it's too late for you. I don't think that's helpful. That's not the way that the scriptures talk about hell. Um, C.S. Lewis, he would also say this, which I think is super helpful. He would say, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question if you don't want hell. Well, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? He says, but he has done so already on Calvary. Or to leave them alone? Well, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. That is what hell is. And he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So here's what we have to recognize. If there is a God, and he is a God who is loving, and he is a God who is just, and he takes injustice seriously, and he takes evil seriously, and he takes you and I and our own sin and our own brokenness and our own flaws seriously as a holy God, we have to get to a point where we recognize divine judgment and the concept of hell. Here's what this also means. If there is a hell, and if some people may be on the way to it, we who are recipients and holders of the good news, it is our responsibility to make sure that other people hear the good news. And if it is not people's good works or morality, which gets them into heaven or gets them into hell, but is rather faith in Jesus Christ alone, then it is of great urgency that we are people who make sure that they are, that all people are aware, aware of the good news of Christ so that they have the ability to respond in faith. Are you with me yeah. now? So here's, here's what I want to do the, the rest of my time. Um, I'm, I'm going to walk us through the rest of the passage that, that the apostle Paul um, uh, shares with us. And I want to kind of break this down the way that he does. And I think it's super helpful. 
I think it's super basic. And so this is, this is what it says in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. Back to our text, it says this. Paul says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they call out to God for salvation unless there's belief? And he says, how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? How are you supposed to believe in something you don't even know about? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? How do you hear about it unless someone tells you? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent. I think this is like one of the most basic portions of scripture that the apostle Paul has ever written. Um, how many of you like you read the Bible sometimes and you're like super confused. You're like, I've got no clue what the, 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 the substitution and the justification and the sanctification and the glorification and the thisification and the thatification. And I'm like out of the vacations and I don't really know what's going on here. And it's like, wow, what's going on here? This is like apostle Paul. He's going like, I'm going to make this really simple for everybody. Okay. This is going to be really simple. So, he, so here, here's, here's what he does. He, he does five things. Here's number one. Number one, he says, um, and if we go in reverse order from his text, here's what he says. Number one is sending. And there's got to be sending. Somebody say sending. sending, not to be confused with sinning, sending. He says sending. People have to be sent. What, what, what that means is that it is the church's responsibility to make sure that people are sent. It's the church's responsibility to make sure that we send people, that we send people to their neighbor, that we send people to the nations. It's not the pastor's job to reach everybody for Christ. It's the pastor's job to do what? To do the sending, to do the equipping, to do the raising up, and then to do the sending, to send people out. And so Paul says, first of all, there's got to be the sending. You've got to do something with what you have um, received. This is the opposite of a Dead Sea Christian. A dead sea, do you know what a Dead Sea is? It's a body of water that only has an input. It doesn't have an output. It only takes in. It doesn't put out. Sometimes we can function and operate like Dead Sea Christians where we have received something, but we don't actually give anything. The Dead Sea it never does anything with what it receives, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, that means what you have received, the good news that you have experienced, it's now your responsibility to, to take that message, to take that good news and to, and to share it and, and to send it. So there's got to be ascending, which how fitting. This is why we do the faith initiative. This is why we plant churches around the world. This is why we send international missionaries around the world. This is why we, we do stuff, we do serve the city and things in our own city. It's because there's got to be ascending. There's got to be ascending. We got to be people who are sending. So he says, number one, there's sending. And then he does kind of like building blocks. Number two, he says, there's got to be telling. There's got to be telling. <laughs> and everybody at this point should be like, duh, Paul. You know, but he's like, no, I'm going to be real basic for you. You have to tell people. Like it just doesn't automatically like infuse from your brain to their brain. That's not how it works. He says you actually have to tell. There's a telling. Um, I'll, I'll say it this way. Someone's believing the good news is always connected to someone's telling the good news. That's how it works. People don't just wake up in the morning and be like, I'm a Christian today. That's not how it works. People just don't wake up in the morning and say, wow, God loves me. People don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm forgiven. No, the way that works is someone actually started a conversation with them. Someone started a relationship with them and said, there is a God there was a God, he loves you, he made you. You have purpose, you have reason, and you can know him, you can experience him. He loves you, he sent his son for you. He's come for you, he's invited you into his kingdom. He's invited you into relationship. Someone has to tell, 
so, someone, so everyone who has believed something, it's because someone else has told them. And, and that's how it works. Uh, do you know that Christianity doesn't advance through military might? It doesn't advance through political domination. You know how Christianity advances? Through, through mouths, through people speaking, through people, people telling. And if, if, I, if, I was, if I was Jesus, like back in the day, like I would have like come up with a better strategy. I mean, like, man, that's not going to work. <laughs> if, if, if this whole thing is hinged on just talking about it, no, 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 no. We need to like figure out, we need to get some government salute. We need to kind of, and actually every, almost every other religion in the world, that's their tactic. Christianity doesn't need any political might. It doesn't need any military force. And actually when it gets those things, it actually harms the advancement of the gospel. Christianity, it happens by speaking, by telling. I'm, that's the way that God operates too. Did you know that? When you look at the beginning of the scriptures and we, we see how God made the heavens and the earth, what does it say? He spoke. He, he spoke, which, which meant in his very words carried power. And it's the same thing for, for you and me. Um, what you speak matters. What you tell people matters. This is why I love that we're a church that practices exhortation and prophecy. I, I love that we're a church that speaks life into people. Um, that wh whether you're a believer, non-believer, Christian, non-Christian, whatever, we, we speak life into people. We speak hope in, into people. Um, it's, it's important. And Paul says um, someone has to be sent, number one. And then number two, there has to be telling. Someone actually has to tell. You have to say something. Now, now here's, here's number three. He's being real basic, y'all. Number three is hearing. <laughs> he's just like, he's like, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm just going to be real simple. All right, hearing. They got to hear it, okay? Like, which means you have to say it in such a way that someone actually hears it, that it actually goes inside, that they actually hear what's being said, that they have to wrestle with, with what's being said. Um, and so, therefore, someone hears. You tell and they hear. I'll say it this way. We aren't responsible for whether someone believes but we are responsible for whether someone hears. Here's what that means. We can't force anybody to become a Christian. I'm not even completely sure how it happens. I mean, honestly, I mean, it's like, if you could like get inside my head right now, it's like something is spoken, a person hears it, it goes in here somehow, Holy Spirit takes that and then makes, push, produces that into belief. I'm not even sure how that happens. It's not our responsibility to try to save someone. It's not our responsibility to make someone believe. It is our responsibility to make sure we tell so that they can hear. All right. It is our responsibility that every single person in the city of Wilmington has the opportunity to hear the good news. And we can't determine who's going to receive it. We don't know who's got, if faith is going to well up in people. But it is our responsibility to make sure that they, they hear. And so Paul says, you got the sending, you got the telling, you got the hearing. And then number four, you got believing. So believing. Somehow it happens. The Holy Spirit comes into somebody. Holy Spirit does. He takes, takes this thing. Jesus would refer, refer to this as being spiritually reborn. That's what faith is. It's, it's a rebirth. It's, it's a second birth. It's something on the inside that gets ignited. It's something on the inside that, that takes the information, that hears the good news of the gospel, that someone is loved, they're cared for by God, that God loves them, that he, he cares for them, that he wants them, that he pursues them, that, that they need God. And if they would repent of their sin and turn to them, they could receive his salvation. 
And somehow God, God takes that and he produces faith in, and belief happens. And belief happens. And, and some, somebody says, I believe that. Sounds like, it, sounds like good news to me. I, I believe, so belief then happens. And then number five is this. Number five, he says calling. Then they call, which means belief happens in, so, in someone's heart. And then they call out to God and they say, God, save me. God, save me. God, I need you. God, I've been trying to do this on my own. I've been resisting you. I've been trying to, to make myself a, a moral person, trying to clean myself up, trying to live my own way and do my own thing. God, I need you. That's how salvation happens. That's how salvation happens. And, and, and Paul basically wants us to understand that in order for someone to call, they've got to believe, but they've got to hear, someone's got to tell, and then they've got to be sent. You see what he's doing? Those things have to happen. Those things have to happen. That's how, that's how, that's, that's how people meet God. That's how people's lives are changed. That, that's how people become um, Christians. That is how it works. Now, here's, here's how I want to close. Um, anybody remember my title from the beginning about 25 minutes ago? Get on your feet. Somebody, somebody wrote it down. Some, some of you with journals and pens, you're, you're amazing people. Um, Titles, get on your feet. Get on your feet. Um, how, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? So here's, here's what this means. We got to be people that get on our feet, okay? We get on our feet, spiritually speaking, um, and we reach out to people that are around us that God has put in our way. We share with them good news. We tell people about God, what he's done. Uh, tell people about them themselves. We just share the news. We just deliver the mail. We deliver the mail. We deliver the mail. Um, we, we share. We got to get on, get on our feet. Now, let me, let me help you think about it in, in this way. I think there's perhaps some confusion or maybe some uh, consternation as we think about, I don't know if I want to tell somebody what they should believe. I don't know if I want to tell someone about their spiritual state that seems like, wow, that seems really aggressive, that seems really prideful, that seems really um, whatever. Um, and so what often happens is we don't do anything. We don't, we don't even take the first step. So let me, let me play this scenario out for you. Let's, let's, let's imagine that there were 10 people in uh, your life, 10 people in your life, maybe it was some neighbors, maybe it was family members, maybe coworkers, maybe whoever. Let's say there were 10 people in your life. Uh, God put them on your heart and you just said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love these people. I'm gonna serve these people. I don't even know necessarily exactly kind of their spiritual condition. I don't know all of their beliefs. I don't know any of that, but God's put them in my life. I'm gonna be intentional with them. Um, I'm gonna love them. I'm going to serve them. I'm gonna um, figure out how to share meals together, share drink together, break, break bread together. We're gonna, maybe we're gonna, uh, maybe they're gonna come to worship with me. Maybe gonna show up to the community group. I'm just gonna, open my life to them. I'm going to be forthright about who I am. I'm not going to be mean. I'm not going to be, you know, a bully. I'm just going to be forthright about who I am. I'm a Jesus follower. I love Jesus. And um, I really think that his, his, he, who he is and his message, I really think it could change it. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to be an open book and I'm going to love people and I'm going to serve people and demonstrate Jesus. To, let's say you did that with 10 people. Okay. Let's say there were, there were 10 people and you were intentional with that 10 people. Um, let me just help you understand how this would happen. Uh, all 10 of those people are most likely not going to trust Christ, just for the record, okay? 
Um, unless you've got like something I don't know about, okay? I mean, maybe we need to talk afterwards. Um, you're not gonna get 10 for 10, okay? That's just, that's just not gonna happen. Um, Jesus would even say, wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way for eternal life, which just means it's everybody's not going to repent and kind of get over their own selves. And most people are gonna stay in a position of kind of resistance against God and the way they live their life. But let's just say they're 10, okay? You got 10, let's play it out. What would happen with the 10? Let's just imagine. Well, here's what I would think and try to help you as your pastor. I would assume in our culture, in our day, in our city, in the cultural climate that we live in, here's how I would think these 10 people would play out. Number one, I think one out of the 10 people would just adamantly oppose you. I think they would adamantly oppose you. I think they would not only reject your beliefs, but I would also think that they would ridicule you for being oppressive in your beliefs. I think that one out of 10 people wouldn't even continue any form of relationship with you because they actually think that you're dangerous because of your views. I think they would even probably tell some other people in the neighborhood chat, the neighborhood group that maybe maybe need to watch out for this person. They're a little bit extreme in the way that they operate. They probably would keep, keep significant distance from you and want nothing to do with you. That's one out of 10. I think three out of 10 would, uh, would, would essentially kind of roll their eyes. They, they roll their eyes. I mean, they wouldn't right out oppose you to your face. But they'll, um, they'll keep their distance. They'd probably ghost you, your invitations to go here, your invitations to do this. They'd probably just, they'd probably just go ghost you or go dark on you. They, they, they'd, they'd roll their eyes. They'd probably think that you're a kook. Um, they'd probably just you know, try to avoid you as much as possible and then probably even have back office conversations about you with the other people at work just because of your, you're one of those people. You're one of those religious people. You're one of those religious types. And I bet three out of 10 would probably roll their eyes. I bet four out of 10 would probably go along with kind of your thing just because there's some level of relationship that's probably there. They probably think you're a nice person. They probably think you're trying to be a moral person. They're not going to buy in, um, but they'll, they'll give you some time. Um, they'll, they'll, you'll still get in, invited to hang out on occasions to their birthday parties or some of their events, um, but you're just a bit too extreme for them. And so they're going to tolerate some of your antics um, because they enjoy a relationship with you, but that's kind of as far as it's going to go. I would imagine one out of 10 would actually be genuinely interested. One out of 10 would begin to take some uh, additional steps, maybe even have a couple conversations, maybe even join you for a worship gathering. Maybe you would show up to community group on a couple occasions, but this person probably won't stick. Um, they're just not quite ready for that kind of spiritual commitment yet. And so they'll probably just over time drift away from the conversation without any meaningful movement. But then there's one remaining. Lastly, I think that one out of 10 will continue the conversation with you over the course of weeks, over the course of months, maybe even over the course of years. And after dozens of conversations, after many invitations, after many birthday parties, after many interactions and drinks and food, this person would come to faith. They'll come to, they'd come to faith genuinely and they would, God would do a work in, in them and they would trust and they would believe and they would actually give their life to Christ and they would get baptized. Here's my question for you. If you knew it was only going to be one, is it still worth it? Is it still worth it? Aren't you glad that 
if it was just you, that you were still worth it uh, to Christ. Here's what I think happens. I think we I think we think about maybe the rejection. I think about maybe what's going to happen, the opposition that we're going to get. And I think we just like, I just can't do it. I'm not going to go there. That's, this is a little too much for, for me. But here, here's, you're not responsible for whether or not someone believes. You're just responsible for making sure they have the opportunity and the access to hear. And so here, here's how um, I'd want to encourage you uh, today. Who are your 10? Who are your 10? Who are, who are the 10 people in, in your life? Who are the 10 people that God has crossed your path with? Um, I, I, I make a list of these people. I make a list of the people. I got neighbors. I got friends. I got, I got people in the city. I, I got a list of people. And, and, and I pray over them. And I think over them. And I, I think about how I could engage in relationship with them. Um, I'm limited on my scope of impact. I hang out with you people all the time. And I hang out with staff. And my, my, my workplace, they're already Christians. So I got to be intentional with my with my neighbors and the people that I'm, I'm around. And, uh, but, but I'm intentional. I'm, I'm going to build some relationship and I'm going to share some good news. And um, it's a little bit weird for me because they already know I'm a pastor. And so <laughs> it's like, we're going to have this conversation whether you like it or not. So I, I kind of got an open door. Um, it's a little different for you though. Do, do even the people in your life even know that you love Jesus and that you follow Jesus? And do they, are they even aware you know, I've heard it said one time that I heard someone say that if God answered your prayer this week for every person that you prayed for that wasn't saved, that they would get saved, would anybody get saved? Did you pray for, did you pray for anybody? You know, did you? You know, we got a church, we got to, we got to reach. We got to reach. So we got to get on our feet. We got to get on our feet. We got to be intentional with the good news that we have. Why? Because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot in this life that's at stake, and there's a lot at stake in the life to come. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, today, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would help us to be people that get on our feet, that get on our feet, that we're intentional with what we have. We're intentional with the good news, that we don't hoard the good news for ourselves, but that we actually share it, and we love to share it with people, people in our our workplaces, people in our neighborhoods, people in our friend spaces, people online, people on social. And so God, I just ask that you would help us to be intentional with um, what you have given us and that we'd see many people come to faith in Christ uh, through responding to your good news. We say this in Christ's name. Amen.